Blog Talk Radio. Sorry about that. Nevertheless, we are delighted to bring to you another episode of Black History Month event. Today is the first day of Black History Month. We wanted to do something earlier, but we think it would be a lot easier to go uh, to go live. Okay, would you stand by one second, please? History Month, and I have, oh, I'm just excited with 
our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Perry, who's here with tons and tons and tons of information, but more in particular, a, a heritage from our country in the West Indies. So let's, without further ado, let's go ahead and welcome Dr. Jeffrey Perry aboard. Jeffrey, good afternoon. Good evening. Good evening, Dr. Etienne, and, um, and thank you so much for hosting this and for uh, opening the airs to discussion of Hubert Harrison. I really appreciate oh, that. This is good. You're welcome. You're welcome. You are the man, the walking man, the, the walking calendar with Dr. Well, I guess he's Hubert Harrison, now deceased, but nevertheless, he had a lot to offer. Before we get into that, just share with the audience a little bit of what you do and how you came to get involved by the history of, of Mr. Hubert Harrison. Uh, fine. I'm a independent, I define myself as an independent working class scholar. Um, okay. I work... <laughs> I, I worked for 33 years in the post uh, as a postal worker, as an activist, and, and uh, a union officer and editor. So I was very much involved in the labor movement. But I also write history, and I did earn some degrees. I went to Princeton, I went to uh, Columbia, and uh, I went to Harvard for a while. I went to a number of these oh, places. Goodness. I got the PhD from yeah. Columbia, and um, but he, all the while. Uh, I was trying to write some history which looked at how we could make social change to be, have success, successful social change efforts in the United States. And I was pretty, okay. you know, pretty convinced by my years of experience and my research that the struggle against white supremacy was central yeah. if we really wanted to make significant social change. So in that context, I started out writing a dissertation under two people, a man named Nathan Huggins, who passed away, unfortunately, uh-huh. but he was at Columbia and then went okay. to and uh, was at the Du Bois Institute at Harvard, and Hollis Lynch, who's from Tobago, Trinidad and Tobago, and um, uh-huh. had written about uh, Hollis Lynch, and he had written about Blyden and Garvey, and they were my two advisors. And I'll wrap uh-huh. this little second. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just reacting yeah, to okay. what you're saying. Keep going. So I was working under them, and I was trying to address the question why the left organizations and left efforts in the United States were not more successful. I was focusing Mm -hmm. on white supremacy in particular. And in the course of that, I came across writings by three people who mentioned this fellow named Hubert Harrison. And those three people were J.A. Rogers in World's Great Men of Color, um, who has a wonderful chapter on Hubert Harrison, Richard B. Moore, who's from Barbados and in the Encyclopedia of African-American History, does a wonderful piece on Harrison. And I'll just add parenthetically, to this day I'm friends with Moore's daughter, Joyce Moore Turner, who turned 100 a few months ago and as recently Mm -hmm. as last August had an article published in the Journal of Caribbean History at age 100. She's she's exemplary. And uh, people might want to look for that article. And uh, it's on Ethelred Brown, who also founded a Hubert Harrison Memorial Church after Harrison died, uh, amongst his many other things that he did. And um, uh, so I start. I was working uh, under those, under uh, Huggins and Lynch, 
And uh, the third source, a man named Philip Fona, who was a labor historian, had a little on Harrison. And I was so mm-hmm. interested. I said, who is Hubert Harrison? Because I hadn't heard of him, as had not most people. So I went to yes. the Schomburg Center, which is the main research library on 135th Street in Harlem, which parenthetically Harrison had been instrumental in founding. It wasn't the Schomburg at that time. It was New York Public Library, 135th Street branch. But he and Arthur Schomburg and others really helped build it in its early years. And um, I read uh, two of Harrison's books, The Negro and the Nation, written in 1917. And the second book was entitled... When Africa Awakes, the inside story of the stirrings and strivings of the new Negro in the Western world. That was written in 1920. And they were on, I think they were on microfiche or microfilm. So I had to, you know, hook, set them up, print them out. I took them home and read them. And I couldn't believe what I was reading because I I had read what I thought was most all the literature of the left activists and radicals. And this fellow was head and shoulders above all of them in his clarity and his brilliance of his writings and stuff. So I I determined at that point that I wanted to write on him. So that was around 19, early 1980s, very early 1980s. Now, to go on with that story just briefly. So um, I then uh, set out to find out what I could about Harrison. And um, I sent the same letter to 35 different places. That was a big innovation back then. This is pre, you know, uh, email and all this stuff. But you could more or less type out the same letter and change who it was going to. And a librarian from St. Thomas. Librarian from St. Thomas. Yeah, wrote back to me and said, I'm related to Harrison's family and his son and daughter are alive. The son is in Harlem and the daughter is in Yonkers, New York. And she put me in contact with So I contacted them and then, uh, you know, we met, uh, we met uh, three times at the son's apartment. It was on 150th street off Bradhurst in Harlem. And we met there. And the first time we met them, you know, I told them I was interested in writing on their, their uh, father and they wanted to know why. Second time we met, I brought some chapters I had written uh, uh, towards a biography of their father and then the third time, the third time, they took me into the front room of what I used to call when I lived in Hoboken, places like this, a railroad flat. It's an apartment that just runs straight, straight through every room. You know, it's not, it's not very expensive. And in the front room um, was, uh, they had kept, they had preserved essentially uh, since 1927. They may have moved once or twice but they had preserved Harrison's papers since 1927 when he died. He dies in December 1927. And they told me, here, Jeff, take these and do what you need to do with these papers. And I was overwhelmed that they trusted me. I felt a great sense of responsibility, a burden, but I also, you know, just felt energized. And so I set about – Doc, you know, I, I made backups of every article. I only worked from copies wherever possible. I inventoried them. I transcribed a lot of them. I did this after work every day for a number of years. Wow. I, was, I was also in that period, besides working, uh, I was a, what they call up here a soccer dad. 
my daughter was growing up and playing soccer, and I had to run to all the games. And, and sometimes I'd be the, sometimes I'd be the flag man, <laughs> you know, drop the flag. So, um, yeah. and and I worked on that. And when I finished my dissertation at Columbia in 1986, it was only because it, it went up. It was over 800 pages, and um, it only went up to 1918. And my advisors, Huggins and Lynch, said, Jeff stop it there you, you know you got to turn this thing in and we got to move on so I did yes. and then wow after that just a couple more little parts of this story after that I took uh, Harrison's son William had died by this time but his daughter Ada was still alive so I took her out to a restaurant she was about 75 at the time uh, B. Smith's restaurant B. Smith was a model uh, who opened a restaurant in New York, uh, I think in the West 50s. It was nice food, nice atmosphere. And we went there, and uh, after the the meal, uh, Harrison's daughter reaches down uh, into her pocketbook and pulls out something, in a, I guess wrapped in maybe a plastic bag or some such, and she goes, here, take this and do with it what you need to do with it. And I opened wow. it up. And it was Hubert Harrison's diary. I had no idea such a document existed. And I had no idea that such a document existed. And for a biographer, that's an extraordinary, you know, uh, piece of resource to work with. And um, and she entrusted me with that also. And I had already written 800 pages, so I was very convinced I had a two-volume biography by this time. Uh, so oh, then I went. I went to some historic historical convention. The first table I went to, they said, "Oh, please don't show this." I showed them a draft of what I was working on. They said, uh, "We want to publish your work." I sent my material to them, but it was only volume one because I, I was already working on volume two. And um, uh, they, they send them to outside readers. Is how they handle it. Um, you know, when mm-hmm. you're um, trying to get published by University Press. And the outside sure. readers came back with rave, rave reviews, but the press didn't know what to do with it. They said they were basically saying to me, "Who are you, and who's who, and who's Hubert Harrison?" And and they didn't know what to do with it. And so we went through, we jumped we jumped these ropes for about fifteen years because I was determined that wow. Harrison merited much more than they uh, thought he did, and ultimately I I met. Uh, somebody who worked at Columbia University Press. Uh, I I broke my contract with the old publisher, and I went to Columbia University Press, and I played. Uh, I signed a contract with them. I did Volume One, which I'm going to describe in a second, and then I also worked with Columbia University Press to place another uh, with Columbia University Archives to place Harrison's papers there. So okay, on Hubert Harrison. I have written a number of things, but the main things are two volumes of his biography. Now, I'm going to point out at the beginning, these two volumes, the first one is Hubert Harrison, The Voice of Harlem Radicalism, 1883, the year he's born, 1883 to 1918. And the second volume, the one I just completed, Hubert Harrison, The Struggle for, 18, uh, the struggle for Equality, 1918 to 1927. They are. Uh, Let me hold it for a minute. Yeah. Excuse me one second, please. I'd like to let the audience know 
that we are so fortunate that you will be able to have two pieces of black history as well, well, combined. Black history, and then we have Virgin Island history. So we will have yes. you back on the 3rd of March to share the second volume. So that is interesting. Thank you very much. Go right ahead. Gotcha. Okay, let me just go on a little more. So uh, those two volumes, which I just named, they comprise the fir- what I believe to be the first full-length multi-volume biography of an Afro-Caribbean in history from this man wow. from St. Croix. First full-length yeah. multi-volume biography of an Afro-Caribbean, and only the fourth of an African-American after those of Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Langston Hughes. So Hubert Harrison is a giant of black and Afro-Caribbean history. He really is. And Columbia University Press is a very prestigious press. So, and just a little more on these books. Um, They're available from Columbia University Press. um, Columbia University Press is currently offering a 20% discount if you go to their website and use the code CUP20, which stands for Columbia University Press 20. And um, if people have trouble getting it from Columbia University Press, they're also available at Amazon for some discount. Uh, Somebody down in St. Croix said they were having trouble getting it, but then they got it through Amazon. Um, And uh, so that material is available. But one other thing that's very interesting um, I'm, I'm pleased because I asked them to do this if they would. Besides putting out the books in hard and paper, the books are in EPUB or you know electronic edition, which is good. Mm-hmm. You know, just for reading, ease of reading. You can expand the screen. You can search very easily, and they're available in that form now. And um, I, I want to call that to readers' attention. And um, regarding Harrison's papers. They're at Columbia. Uh, if people just search Hubert H. Harrison papers, uh, they'll find an inventory of all the papers. It was, over, I think, over 100 boxes I gave to them. I placed them with mm-hmm. Columbia after I'd inventoried them and transcribed a lot and, uh, you know, just prepared them. But the family got all the money. I want listeners to realize I'm not a ripoff. All the money went to the family, and it was a very large sum went to the family. For this mm-hmm. major That's good. That's and, um, yeah, and uh, the papers are there, but also at Columbia University Rare Books and Manuscript Library. If you Google a little further or search a little further, look for Hubert H. Harrison Digital Collection, you will see that all, last year only, because I've been pushing for this for a while, they put up online 1,300-plus items from Harrison's wow. papers, including his over 1,300, including his diary. This is, it's all for free because what I wanted to do is make as much as I could uh, freely available to people. One, two more things I just want to mention about how freely available some of this material can be. The first volume of the Harrison book on uh, Hubert Harrison, The Voice of Harlem Radicalism, if you go to... Um, Amazon.com, and you look for the book. I believe I believe it's Amazon.com. They have a reader's view or you know preview or something, and it includes 
I think the first two chapters, and the first one will be, I believe, of extraordinary interest to our uh, Virgin Island listening audience because it's about his Crucian roots. And it gets into a lot of ties, background, names that people, that are going to ring bells for names, names of people that people may be related to, and perhaps a lot of history people are not so familiar with. So, And in the yeah. second volume, you can also get uh, a link. Uh, I think uh, you can get a link to this online for free, two chapters of volume two, the new book. So even mm-hmm. now, if pe- people are hard-pressed for money or anything, the, the books are, uh, you know, you can get access to a little of what they're about. The last and final thing, and very important for now, the last and final thing, I encourage people to do whatever they can to talk to their libraries, their librarians, their, the people who uh, mm-hmm. make acquisitions to the libraries, to get each volume of the Harrison biography in their local and university and college libraries. He, you know, mm-hmm. he should be there so people have access yeah. to him for free. And if you can do yes. that in St. Thomas, people can do it in St. You know, if people can do it, that would be a yes. tremendous plus. And I, I just ask you and encourage you and your audience to, you know, help with that effort. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, I'm so glad that we have met years ago, <laughs> learned yes. about this. And you're still going at it. Fantastic. Good to uh, you, it, it, it's been a few. It's been a few health issues since then. Oh, by the way, we had 20 inches of snow today. You know, I, I, I see you had uh, 80 degrees, but we had 20 inches of snow. It's still coming down. Well, we had the water. So you had the snow. We had the water. Okay. Yes, we did. All right. Yeah. Well, it's so good that you're here, and I'm so glad Thank again you. that you're able to come back the second time, and we could talk more about Sincoy in that way. That gives us plenty of time to get the word out to many people. I'll put it in the daily newspaper and whatnot. Yes, sir. Thank you. Great. Okay, so you had the two volumes and you've done that. Now, tell me a little bit more about uh, Mr. Harrison. He was born in St. Croix, but he ended up in, in Harlem. Why is that? Yes. Okay, well, he's born on State Concordia, the Concordia near the Salt River, right, in in, in uh, St. Croix. And his, um, <laughs> yeah, his, uh, say it again? The Cruiser, oh, no, yeah, we make fun of each other. Each other. And his um, mom's from Barbados. She came mm-hmm. as a plantation working woman. And recently... Uh, I was contacted by people who were putting together uh, an encyclopedia of uh, Barbadians, and they wanted to include Harrison (laughs) because his mom was from Barbados. I said, great. Yeah, that's good. But so he he was from, uh, she was from Barbados, a plantation worker, and his biological father had been born enslaved uh, in St. Croix. Now, I was able to trace a lot of the family, a lot of the family tree, You know, at first I I worked for years trying to piece together his family history, and I went to Denmark, and I went to Washington, D.C., and I went to archives Mm. elsewhere in in the U.S., and I went to England. I I wasn't coming up with much. And then I was put in touch with George Tyson, who has done the um, St. Croix African Roots Project, right? And Mm. he's just a 
resource of tremendous information, and he helped me piece together a lot of the missing links in Harrison's family, and that's that's captured a lot in Volume One. Um, mm-hmm. So, so, uh, so Harrison's born in Saint Croix, uh, and from early years, he has a desire to learn. One of the stories that his uh, I think it was his sister recounted, was when he was eight years old. He, he lived on uh, Concordia for a while, and then he was living um, in the water gut section of uh, Christianstead. You know, he's very impoverished, but he used to go to, yeah. I think it's St. John's Episcopal Church there in, in Christianstead, and uh, yeah. he'd go and he'd g- had gain access to the library. You know, eight years old, and um, he, he was reading books that were on the shelves in the library. And then he asked his sister to, if she could send him uh, a book, Tom, uh, Tom Brown's school days and a Bible, you know, he just wanted to read. And he had that early, you know, he had that early. He, his formal education, I believe, although I got to say another thing, I've written these two volumes and they are big volumes. The first book came to over 600 pages with very copious wow. notes. And the second yeah. volume with almost 200 pages of notes, maybe over, over 200 pages of notes, comes to 1,000 pages. These are big books. And, um, you know, I wrote these books in the hopes that they would stand the test of time and that they would be uh, of use to current and future generations because there are so many things in Harrison's life that people can draw on whether it's if they're interested in his political activism, his, um, his work with Garvey, his, um, his literary output. He was, he's reportedly the first regular Negro book reviewer in Negro newspaperdom, his soapbox oratory topics, you know, abound that people might want to write about or his ties with his, Crucian roots and Crucian activists and Virgin Island activists continuing yes. throughout the 20s. Yeah, there's many things people could pick up on. So I, I wrote these books with that in mind. Um, now, uh, so going back, Harrison is, he's in St. Croix. He likes to read a lot. Uh, and he goes to school only probably as far as the ninth grade education. I think he had for a while... I think he was schoolmate with D. Hamilton Jackson. They were friends. And I think Jackson's father, Wilford Jackson, who Harrison referred to as the finest uh, teacher, uh, black or white, in, uh, in St. Croix, uh, I think he either was his teacher or influenced him way back, right? And I, yeah. I also picked up a little of this from, interestingly, papers from Denmark, right? You know? I mean, you, 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 if you search and you dig long enough and hard yeah. enough, there are vast resources. Um, yes. So Harrison had this tremendous desire to learn, but then his mom passes away in 1899, and he decides to come to New York. His sister had preceded him. An older sister had preceded him. And I comment in the book the the, the situation of an older sister preceding other family members was often the case in Caribbean family, in, in, in Caribbean families. They were kind of the pace setters, the trendsetters yeah. and paved the way. And that was the case with Harrison. 
So he came up to New York and stayed with her in the West 60s of Manhattan, uh, 62nd Street. Now, uh, that area was the area of concentration, densely populated, of African-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans because it was before the IRT subway was built and um, and uh, and uh, that IRT train went up to Harlem, right? And then Harlem started to grow and Harrison moved up there later. But uh, so Harrison had that desire uh, to read and write. When he, when he comes to New York, he's working five days a week and evenings and still he goes to high school for two nights a week, I think it was, and a headline in one of the New York Daily newspapers says, genius found in West Indian student. They've never seen anybody wow. like him. He's, get, he's getting pretty wow. white on his New York, and, uh, yes. you know, he barely has time to go to school. And um, <laughs> so, so, so he's working, and he's very much on his own and, and reading, but then he has the very good fortune to become associated with a group of black working-class intellectuals in New York. These were people like Arthur Schomburg, Arthur, Arturo Alfonso Schomburg. He's from Puerto Rico. Um, the big library in New York is named after. And uh, John Bruce and um, uh, Charles Burroughs and his wife, uh, Williana Jones Burroughs. These are black working-class intellectuals who would meet at places like um, at Church Lyceums uh, on 53rd Street, which which was near enough to where Harrison lived. It was on West 53rd Street. And uh, Harrison described these lyceums as places where people could come together, and they'd oftentimes have guest speakers each week, or they themselves would speak, and then they'd have discussion afterwards. Sometimes they'd agree, sometimes they'd differ. And Harrison said this was a really... A beginning of a, a wonderful intellectual growth and, uh, uh, you know, the, of race consciousness for a lot of these Afro-Americans and African-Caribbeans in New York. And one thing he also emphasized about it is they, their discussions and debates, they would be freewheeling, you know, and it, you'd, you'd speak your mind. You would not bite your tongue, but yet you could still be mm-hmm. friends afterward. And this was something yeah. that stayed with Harrison for the remainder of his life. He would speak openly. Um, and so he's nurtured in that environment. And then he um, he does some work at a, a, a St. Rose um, home for colored working girls where he's teaching classes. To uh, This was a place where black women from the Caribbean and uh, down south in the U.S. would come and they could stay there and they could leave their children for the day if they had to go out and work. And uh, he would teach classes for the uh, uh, children in the daytime and and lead classes for the adults at night. And he did that for a while. And then around, um, uh, you know, well, he, oh, he, he got hired for the, by the Postal Service. Now, I smile when I say that because I worked in the Postal Service for many yeah. years. The other person I write about, Theodore W. Allen, who pioneered a class struggle-based analysis of white privilege and also wrote the very seminal two volumes on the invention of the white race, who's uh, kind of like a mentor to me, 
also worked in the post office, and of course Harrison worked in the post office. And when Harrison worked in, yeah, excuse me, one minute. What you said about the history of what's what's the title again? History of history of. uh, Yeah, that's okay, no problem. Because what I was going to say, what you're talking about is also on uh, YouTube, is it not? Oh, yeah, the invention of the white race. That invention one? of the white race. That's what I meant. Yes, yes, yes. That and video, that's, that's if, people go, if people go to my webpage, my, oh, my webpage is www.jeffreybperry.net. That particular video on the invention of the white race has over 165,000 views. It, it, it's got Ooh. slides and it, run, it runs uh, about an hour and three quarters and then has maybe a half hour of Q&A. And it was filmed on a night when there was no heat. It was a night in January about eight years ago, just like today up here. But people turned out and they packed the place. And um, I also have videos on Hubert Harrison there and lots of articles. I try and put everything I can for free. And there is a tremendous amount of material on my webpage. And I encourage people to go to it, jeffreybperry.net. Free, free mm-hmm. items. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, now, where was I? Uh, so he, he's Sorry. working in a post office, and yeah. um, Booker T. Washington, who's the most powerful black man in America at that time and has a political machine, uh, goes mm-hmm. to Europe and uh, issues a couple of talks in which he essentially says uh, conditions for bl- black people, Negroes, Colored people, whatever he was using that that day, uh, um, are pretty pretty good back in the U.S. And Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois, put together uh, a group of about 50 more prominent people, uh, uh, black activists, and they sent a letter of protest. Harrison's working in the post office, and on his own, he writes two letters to a newspaper, the New York Sun, saying essentially. Booker T, you're free to say what you want, but you should tell the truth. And within a matter, of, within a matter of a very short time, Hubert Harrison was summarily fired from the post office. Now, as I said, I'm a postal activist for many years, and I fought many battles, many grievances, strikes, and the like. I got fired, so I knew my way in and out of postal. Uh, Cubby holes, and I was able to go and and go to the archives in St. Louis. I, I did this from a distance. I mean, I reached out and, and I got yeah. Harrison's postal record, and he had a clean postal record until he was summarily fired because of this oh. stuff. But that, that show, and part of the reason was Booker T. Washington had something that was called the Tuskegee machine. That was his apparatus. And it, it it reached all over in the U.S. And his right-hand man was named Emmett Scott. And Emmett Scott apparently reached out to the postmaster of New York named Morgan. And to this day, the largest postal facility, um, uh, postal facility in New York City in the West 30s is named Morgan Station. And uh, they he talked to him, and then Harrison was summarily fired. Now, this would be a devastating blow to Harrison and his family. Harrison had married in 1909. Uh, his wife 
uh, was also from the Caribbean. She transferred. She traveled through. A, her family traveled through a number of islands. But Irene Louise Horton Harrison was her name, and they would ultimately have five children together. Last child, wow. uh, the son William, being born in 1920. So when Harrison gets fired in 1911 um, by um, uh, by the post office. He, at that time, has two children. I think a third is on the way, and he would ultimately have five. But basically, for the remainder of his life, he would live in or near poverty. I mean, it was a devastating blow. And um, so then he goes about, and then the story as it unfolds, and this is what I highlight in the first volume, because we're going to do the second volume next time, he said. In the first volume, he then becomes very active with the Socialist Party, and he is the leading black activist in the Socialist Party, because Harrison is looking for social change that involves race and class. And he um, he writes f- five major articles in the theoretical, in, in the uh, newspapers and journals of the Socialist Party, the first major pieces by a black socialist in their history, first major pieces. Mm-hmm. And... He's, a, he's an orator. 1912 was the big campaign of Eugene V. Debs for president. Debs ran a number of times, but this was a big campaign. And Harrison would speak as many as 23 times a week on street corners for Debs. He spoke before 50,000 people in New York. He, he, spoke at, he spoke at Wall Street and Broad down, downtown, lower Manhattan, near the stock exchange. He went there at 1 o'clock and spoke as far as his voice could reach to an audience that extended as far as his voice could reach for three hours. This is according to a New York Times report on the subject of socialism. And I refer to that, and maybe your listeners will pick up on this, but I I certainly think that qualifies as perhaps the first Occupy Wall Street. (laughs) And he did it, you know, over 100 years ago. And he, um, he did all these talks all over, he went out to the big Patterson silk strike in 1913. That was the major labor struggle in the country, um, silk workers. And he was there with leaders of the IWW uh, and the labor movement, uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, Big Bill Haywood, and others. And uh, he spoke there. And to this day, uh, we have events at the Botto House where he spoke uh, I'm scheduled to go there again in a few months to speak on Hubert Harrison. I've done it a number of times, and they huh. really appreciate Harrison's roots. That's called the American Labor Museum. So mm. he's with the socialists, and but then ultimately in 1912, he puts before the socialists, before they go to their convention, uh, an editorial uh, a piece. He says, uh, socialism or southernism, what's it going to be? And by southernism, he means white supremacy. What's going to be the direction of this party? And that's because the yeah. socialists had been practicing white supremacy down south. Uh, still, they refused to even root uh, Debs in his electioneering campaign down south. Mm-hmm. And um, at, at the 1912 convention, they came out with a very white supremacist position on Asian immigration. All the stuff, you know, Harrison, Harrison thought the, the struggle... He, he, when he wrote for the Socialist Press, he said, politically, the Negro is the 
touchstone of the modern democratic idea. Now, a touchstone, hopefully listeners will go look that word up, or maybe they have one on their desk like I used to have one right here. It's a black stone, and you pick it up, and you take the the metal, and you rub the metal against the touchstone to see if it's really the gold it's supposed to be. It's a tremendous metaphor. You take any issue, housing, unemployment, health care issues, and on and on, and you say, well, how are black people faring, and what are we going to do about it? You know, it's, it's like a, a guide to how to undertake political work in the U.S. Yeah. And, uh, and he goes on in that same passage to essentially say um, uh, equality, uh, equality for the Negro implies a, a revolution startling to even think of. And I, I thought that was very precocious and brilliant because that's what I see in Allen later on. And I, I think it's true because if you can break through that wall of white supremacy, that's what they rely on. That's what the ruling class relies on to maintain social control. But if they can be beat back on that, lots of doors open and lots of progress can be made. So he's writing things like this. But he comes mm-hmm. to the conclusion around 1914 that the Socialist Party put the white race first before class. That they, they, when, they when they wrote um, their position on Asian immigration, they had a little passage in there that class consciousness is learned, but race consciousness is inborn or something along those lines, you know. In other words, it's innate, you can't do anything about it. And Harrison Harrison questioned and challenged all of that. So he concluded that they put the white race first before class. And I emphasize that in volume two in particular, because it's such a profound critique. And if the left in the U.S. had paid more attention to that critique and to Hubert Harrison over the past 100 years, I think we would be a lot further along in efforts at social change today. <laughs> you know, if people learned that, he's really up to something. Yeah. You know, let's follow. So he leaves the Socialist Party, and then he goes independent for a while. He's speaking on, uh, he joins um, uh, a movement. Uh, speaking independently, essentially, 1914, 15. And in 1916, he starts doing a a series of theater reviews from some of the earliest black theater groups, most notably uh, Lafayette Players and uh, other groups, one or two other groups that he, he does reviews of. And he starts focusing on how the roles that black actors and uh, are, uh, have to assume or, uh, you know, expected to assume, uh, you know, the implications of that and uh, what they are. So he wants to, he, he starts deciding, I've got to write more on how we've got to break out of this. And he wants to start turning to concentrated work in the black community, in the African-American mm-hmm. community. Prior to this, he had been, all over the city speaking when he was speaking 23 times a week. He'd speak uptown, downtown, cross town. But in 1916, early 1917, he starts concentrated work in, in, uh, particularly in Harlem. And um, in um, June of 1917, he founds the first 
organization, the Liberty League, and the first newspaper, The Voice, of the militant new Negro movement. Um, now, uh, that I, I'm pointing out the date because there's been much written about the new Negro and, and Herbert, Henry Louis Gates coming out with yet another book about Alain Locke's new Negro, 1925, etc. And a lot of this this coverage focuses on Alain Locke in 1925, but the movement around Locke movement, if you will, I'm not even, you know, uh, was essentially a literary movement, but Harrison's new Negro movement was militant. It was political, but it was also extraordinarily literary because Harrison was a brilliant literary talent. Um, In the Mm -hmm. Harrison papers, that I placed at Columbia, there are over, I believe, 500 articles that he wrote in his short life. Because, again, particularly in Volume 2, we'll see all. He was writing for all these journals, newspapers, et cetera. Um, But so in June 12th of 1917, he calls a meeting on 132nd Street uh, for the founding of the Liberty League and The Voice. And the slow Woodrow Wilson... (coughs) had just issued a proclamation for the U.S. or urged that the U.S. go into World War I to make the world safe for democracy. That was Woodrow Wilson's slogan. Mm-hmm. And Harrison's slogan to counter Wilson's was, let's make the South safe for democracy. Because as he writes <laughs> later, as he writes yeah. later, he didn't believe a word Wilson was saying. Because Wilson, for people yeah. familiar with his history, Wilson had been a segregationist. He had uh, segregated the federal sector and the postal service when he was in uh, the White House. He brought the movie The Birth of a Nation to the White House. He went into Haiti and Dominican Republic. And even they went in and uh, into the Virgin Islands, right, in that early period. Um, And uh, he's a whole history of Wilson's white supremacy. And, And Princeton University, where he was president for a while, they are now undergoing a whole renaming of a number of things that were named after him. Um, yeah. But Harrison, Harrison would later write, I didn't believe a word he was saying, you know, but at times <laughs> I would use his own words to come back at him, yeah. you know, to, and, and show, well, we believe in democracy too, you know? And um, so <laughs> they, they have this meeting uh, attracted by a large crowd and then the next day, Harrison goes up to Boston, delivers a similar talk uh, with, uh, with the assistance of William Monroe Trotter, who's a major black activist, contemporary more of Du Bois than Harrison, but a major figure in black history. And they, they also come together again in 1918, which I'll get to in a second. And so Harrison starts publishing The Voice in 1917. And it's uh, a newspaper for the new Negro. And he refers to his organization as the uh, militant new Negro movement. Uh, now, his, his book, um, uh, The Negro in a Nation, is published in 1917. Then, uh, in 1918, Harrison and Trotter mm-hmm. go uh, convene in Washington, D.C., a uh, Liberty Congress, uh, and it's going to uh, protest the U.S. efforts in World War One. And um, in this case, uh, 
Joel E. Spingard, who's the head of the NAACP. He's a European-American. He had taught at Columbia University, and he's got some money, you know, and he's also, according to W.E.B. Du Bois, Du Bois' closest white friend, he would help Du Bois out at various times with money and other things, is the head of the NAACP, and he's a major in military intelligence. Military intelligence is that branch of the government that monitors the black and the radical community. And uh, when Harrison and Trotter planned to convene this Liberty Congress, uh, Spingarn wanted to uh, talk them out of it, but he got no place with Trotter, and he didn't even bother with Harrison because he knew he wouldn't get any place. But as, as I said, he's also Du Bois's closest white friend, and Du Bois made his own decision, as far as I know. I don't think that he was, con- you know, talked into it by Spingarn. Oh, let me also add. To this day, the NAACP gives their award for outstanding achievement by a Black American. It's entitled the Spingarn Medal. It's named after Jolie Spingarn. Food for thought on that one. And um, uh, the uh, so Du Bois writes in the Crisis Magazine, which he's the editor editor mm-hmm. of, in uh, July of 1918, uh, one paragraph long uh, editorial entitled "Close Ranks." in which he essentially says, um, uh, while this war lasts, let us forget our special grievances and close ranks behind the war effort. Now, Harrison knew what the special grievances were, as did all the followers of developing events in that period. The special grievances were lynching, segregation, disfranchisement, and Harrison took Du Bois to task mm-hmm. and criticized him openly and publicly and it was a criticism which had much following and Du Bois would never speak to Harrison essentially after that came out after Harrison's critique came out and um, interestingly Herbert Apdecker was the chronicler of Du Bois's life writes in a footnote without much citation that uh, some mm-hmm. 40 years later Du Bois acknowledged the correctness of his critics during World War One, that's Harrison and others. But Harrison criticizes Du Bois, and um, that's essentially where Volume One ends, and then Volume Two is going to pick up at that point. But I just want to say one more thing: in 1920, sure. Harrison edits a publication called The New Negro, and uh, still in this New Negro theme, and it has 53 articles of his writings. Between 1917 and 1920, Harrison is a pioneer and a major force in the history of the new Negro, but he's barely (laughs) mentioned in all the history that comes out on the new Negro. And similarly, Harrison writes a book in 1920. Please listen to this title. Comes out in 1920, late 1920, When Africa Awakes, and Africa is in the racial, not the geographic sense, he explains. When Africa Awakes, the inside story of the stirrings and strivings of the new Negro in the Western world. So Harrison clearly is a pioneer activist of the militant new Negro movement. That's another one of his extraordinary accomplishments. Um, but so when volume one ends, he had, he, he had gained and attracted considerable national prominence uh, after convening 
uh, the Liberty Congress, which was a protest that brought together men and women from 35 states, over 120, 130 people in Washington, D.C. They held this uh, wow. Congress to protest Wilson's efforts. And, um, and, and then he's going to go back to New York. He's, by this time, he's being monitored by the government. You know, he's considered a big radical, and, he's, and he'll be monitored for the, essentially for the remainder of his life. And uh, yeah. he's also going back without any steady income, no source of income. And this would be the, what he would face also for much of the rest of his life. He's always at the edge of poverty. And that's where volume one ends, and uh, we will pick up on volume two. I'm going to catch my breath in a sip of coffee here. <laughs> yes, you should, you should, you should. I don't know how you keep up with all that, man. That's a lot of information. Good information. Well, and then what we'll do I, I next can. time. I Go ahead. Wait one second. Stress. Yeah. Go ahead. I just want to stress for the listening audience, please, if you can, the two books, if you can get them for yourselves, if you can get them an e-book for yourself, and particularly if you can get them into your libraries. Uh, if you get them, in any case, you can get them for 20% discount using code CUP20 from Columbia University Press. And the books, volume one, is Hubert Harrison, The Voice of Harlem Radicalism, volume two, is Hubert Harrison, The Struggle for Equality. First one has the Hubert Harrison, The Voice of Harlem Radicalism, 1883 to 19. Second one is Hubert Harrison, uh, The Struggle for Equality, 1918 to 1927. Again, this is the first full-length, multi-volume biography of an Afro-Caribbean and only the fourth of an African-American. He is a giant of Afro-Caribbean, of Virgin Islands, if you will, African-American history. I think people want to read about him, learn about him, pass it on to current and future generations. And, um, you know, there's much more to be done on this. You know, there's so much, you know, where people could pick up other strands of his life, which I wasn't able to, you know, have time or the resources or whatever to uh, dig into. And I, I, there's much of his story still to be written, but there's so much in these volumes because they're very meticulously footnoted. Oh, and one other thing. In my books, well, in volume two, in the footnotes, okay. anytime I come across an article that I know is online, whether it's something from Harrison's diary or a book review that he might do, I try to link to a free sample of it online and uh and if it's a book that he reviews it's a, a sample that might be in something called the happy trust or the internet archive a permanent archive so you can read not only what harrison says but about the actual book he's reviewing so there's tremendous resources throughout in this second volume and uh Get those youngsters to start looking at this stuff. There's, oh, there's so much they could do. You know, Harrison is a book reviewer. That, that, that could be a whole book just on that topic, Harrison and the New Negro. Uh, when we talk next week, Harrison's writings on the Virgin Islands are profound, particularly uh, a major article he writes in 1923, which we will talk about. And uh, it's Oh, in addition to the two books, those two books that I wrote, I also did a Hubert Harrison Reader from Wesleyan University Press, which has about 153 of Harrison's writings, and people might be interested in that. 
And I also uh, I, I I edited that, and I also did an edited version uh, for Diasporic Africa Press of uh, Harrison's book When Africa Awakes. So if they want to get uh, that When Africa Awakes uh, book, there's been other editions, but I recommend that people get the one I edited because uh, it's got new introductions and lengthy footnotes on all his articles, and that's from Diasporic Africa Press. It was printed in 2015, and it's available online. And all of this is at my webpage, in, links to all of this, and my webpage is www.jeffreybperry.net. And Jeffrey is J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, me, Perry, P-E-R-R-Y.net. Jeff, you have so much to say that all I could do was sit back and listen to what you're saying. Like I'm in school again, learning so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We're just about out of time, but I want you to know when you come back, we'll have extended extended time, and hopefully we'll have a lot more audience calling in because this came up rather shortly. Okay, at the end, one more thing I want to mention. Particularly in, sure. in both volumes, in both volumes, in volume one and particularly in volume two, I make it a point wherever I can where Harrison's at a meeting with Virgin Islanders that I indicate the names of the people who are there and what the times and what they're struggling. Yeah, and because I, I know people in the Virgin Islands, if they get to look at this, that's my relative, yes. that's my friend. You know, yes. there's something that they can get much out of, and it's in both volumes, and this is particularly pronounced in volume two, when he's active with a number, Virgin Islanders were very active up in Harlem. People might not know this. And in in New York, they had several major organizations, and Jackson came through, and Rothschild Francis came through, and uh, you know, just a host of good activists, real good activists, and uh, I, I always try to make it a point to list those names some people might say, ah, you may mention all these names, blah, blah, but I know to some people it's going to be very important. <laughs> Jeff, thank you very much. We're just about out of time. We have down to 30 seconds left. So I want to thank you, thank you, thank you, and we'll get all that stuff prepared for you when you get back. We'll have you talking more. All right? Okay. Thank you ever thank so you. much for taking time to yeah. be with thank us today. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. Bye-bye now. There it is. There it is. This is a gentleman who is very much in-depth with not only the history of this gentleman, but the history of his 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 his, 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 his grounds right in the Virgin Islands. That's amazing. So, folks, we'll have that up for you the 1st of March, Virgin Islands history. So be prepared for that. So until next time, this is ATN A. Gibbs with in the author's corner with ATN. We'll see you next time around indefinitely the first Saturday of March or whatever the day the day is. The first of March. So so long folks folks. See you around. Take care now. Bye.